It's Battle 3 of World War Cinema, and Total War is on, as my troops are marching effortlessly across all of Austin's territory, laying waste to everything they see. Current score has Austin floundering behind me with a measly 68 points to my 92, and things are likely to get even worse because Austin chose a slow, contemplative Italian art film by Michelangelo Antonioni, whereas I chose a kinetic South Korean thriller by Park Chan-wook. Can Austin force some kind of halt to my unstoppable march to victory? It's Red Desert versus Joint Security Area. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Hey, welcome to I Dig This Movie. I'm Keir Seward, an independent filmmaker and photographer, as well as a guy who just wants to apologize for the lateness of last week's podcast. There were some internet connection problems on our end. Yeah, and I'm Austin Hayden Smith. I don't apologize for anything. People get what they get in this world, and they like it, and they love it, and they thank us for it. No, it was all my fault. I was traveling, and I couldn't upload it while I was at the hotel, so it was kind of a pain in the ass, but... Enjoy it anyway, because it is a good episode. So if you aren't aware, at the beginning of this Versus series, Austin and I started with a list of 20 countries, and we had to assign a film to each. We had restrictions in that there were caps on how many films we could have with high Rotten Tomatoes scores. 590 to 100, 580s to 89, 570s to 79, and 569 or below. We then each picked five countries out of a hat. Each episode, we pit two of those countries against each other. Battle 1 saw Canada against China, where Goon beat Rumble in the Bronx. Battle 2 saw New Zealand beat Australia, with the Deadlands beating the Rover. So far, that leaves Austin trailing by 24 points, and in the danger zone of being subjected to this series' punishment, a Tyler Perry marathon. So this week I've decided to uh, that the mercy rule is in effect, and uh, we will no longer be getting... Uh, five points for winning the round well didn't we decide that you are at that 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 rule only goes into effect with you but if i win i still get the five points okay fine we'll we'll call that the mercy rule the mercy rule is if austin somehow if red desert somehow beats joint security area it's called it's Uh, called the handicapped rule my handicap it's like in golf my handicap's higher than yours so i get a couple extra strokes basically it's like when the guys used to play the girls at soccer at my high school and Every girl's goal counted for two points. Is that what you guys did? Yeah, no, no, no. We literally did that. <laughs> How did, did, I mean, did you guys still whoop their ass or was it ever pretty close or? I mean, generally what this was, was it was when it was mixed. So oh, okay. if we played mixed, then if a girl scored, it was worth two points. So oh, like gotcha. part of it was the incentive to pass the girls more because then, you know, oh. you knew that if they scored, then it was better for you. Ah. Uh, that's there, there's something weird going on here and like some sort of uh, gender social relation thing that I'm sure some theorist would want to study. But uh, let's get into movies, brother. Venezia, anche la venticinquesima mostra d'arte cinematografica si è conclusa con una grande affermazione del cinema italiano. Nonostante le polemiche che hanno accompagnato la presentazione dei film in concorso e le discussioni sulla mancata partecipazione coreografica delle grandi dive, questa venticinquesima edizione del Festival Veneziano si è conclusa con un bilancio lusinghiero e positivo. Al Palazzo del Cinema applausi per Michelangelo Antonioni, vincitore del Leone d'Oro di San Marco e autentico trionfatore del Festival Veneziano col film Deserto Rosso. Vieni 
ti presento un amico, l'ingegner Zeller, mia moglie. Well, first of all, I just want to say this at the outset. Regardless of the scoring, Red Desert is a much better film than Joint Security Area. That's all I'm going to say. The scoring, so audience, don't be, uh, you know, swayed in the wrong way by the possible scoring of this man on the other side here who's going to lambaste this film, okay? This is a brilliant film. This is a classic of cinema. Uh, it is Antonioni's first color film, and it is about a woman who is basically dealing with existential dread. Um, I mean, it depends on how you want to interpret it, but I mean, you could simply say that it has to do with the battle between nature and culture. Um, because at the end, there's this really telling scene where a bird is flying next to a smokestack of this like pungent yellow smoke that's coming out, and someone talks about how the bird just doesn't fly near that. And the reason that's significant is because it's a woman who is experiencing uh, a sort of nervous breakdown, existential anxiety, stuff like that. She just doesn't feel right in the world, and so she ends up um, having an affair with a man and, and uh, participating in all of these various things to stimulate, if you will, a comfort and to overcome this existential dread. And the affair doesn't really work. And the the interesting thing is there's only one real moment where something does kind of snap her into a connection, if you will. And it's this moment when her son, uh, who she believes goes paralyzed, um, you know, is in need of her care, is in need of something. And at that moment, she's able to find like a purpose or a place. But then she finds out that the kid was just faking it for whatever reason. And she kind of falls back into the anxiety, which is really interesting, I think. So it's, it's a film about anxiety. It's a film about um, it, it takes place all within these industrial landscapes uh, that are pollutant and loud and grating. And um, so I think there's also this uh, exploration of, of humans being thrown into a non-natural or overly saturated industrial environment and how that produces a sort of disconnect with, um, with the rhythms, if you will, of our, of our being. So that's what the film's about. Uh, and, uh, it's uh, it is slow moving, um, but it's more of a portrait that comes to life, if you will, because each shot is very picturesque. The colors are very. It's almost kind of new wavy in in its uh, color palette. You know, a lot of uh, big reds and uh, yellows and things like that. So, um, I guess that would be how I would describe this film. Here, does that sum up the film for you? Well, I mean, I thought it was really beautifully directed. Like I thought the use of the industrial landscapes was really beautifully shot and the sort of the way that they use these kind of telephoto lenses to create this sense of the people being really small in these kind of large mm. landscapes I thought was, um, was great. Um, I thought the acting was good in so much as I always find acting hard to judge in foreign languages yeah. uh, because it's, it's that thing of even if I think she's, over the top at times it's kind of like i don't i'm not around a lot of italian people so i don't necessarily know how italian people act they, and they are over the top you know for all i know how she's acting could be incredibly subtle for italian people it's it's <laughs> right. a little bit hard to judge these things sometimes yeah. it's why i always feel really hard judging acting in asian culture as well because they have such a history of kind of big bravado mm. um physical performances um you know, I thought the production was beautiful in terms of the uh, all the colors. I, I thought the colors are really sumptuous. I, I really like the design. I was reading that um, um, 
Antonioni even went as far as to like paint grass mm. and sort of really like try and get like these really distinct colors. Um, and I think the visual metaphor works really nicely and I like the end thing of the the whole sum up of it with the birds flying through it. I just don't know why it had to be two hours. That's my <laughs> this, this is like it's like I, I didn't mind this film that much. It's it was the length of sitting through it yeah. that was the thing that kind of like got to me about it. It was like it was like I found like this could be a really compelling 30 minutes. And it was just like it was just that thing of right. I was kinda like why did this have to take two hours to get to this point? I feel like I knew what this film was doing 15, 20 minutes in, and I just couldn't... And it's just like, it's like, the even like the stuff in the shack just goes on forever. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's not that like, and that's the thing, is like, I can't fault it in a lot of ways. Like, I don't think it's by any means a bad film. And it's not like, say, like Godard. I find Godard indulgent, you know, and sort of self-important. I didn't find this particularly indulgent and self-important. I felt it was more kind of... I I, I don't know. I I think it's... I I, I think there was an earnestness to what it was doing Mm. um, rather than a sort of self-aggrandizement. But... And that's just an abstract observation i can't really necessarily quantify why i feel that way um perhaps it's because it has a much more muted neorealist feel to it than i would say kind of the more kinetic kind of quick elements of the new wave Mm. um but it was i mean also too um because I was looking at some of uh, the trailers, because I've never actually watched any of Antonioni's other films. Um, I was looking at some trailers for like Zabriskie Point and yeah, um, Blow Up, and uh, it you know it it seems like he went on to make a lot more sort of quite fast paced and kinetic films um, off the back of this, and and I and I think the muted tone is obviously part of what it's trying to say about this kind of anxiety humanity recontextualized within this industrial world and and i think the way for instance like even like that shot of um richard harris kind of looking at that just polluted lake and this constant um this constant feeling of watching how nature is being has been taken over by these big industrial landscapes and then you have her telling the story to the boy about this girl who's very much at one with nature and then once Mm. you sort of introduce this idea of this boat and the idea of civilization and humanity, the voices coming from the rock, something sort of mm. wrong. I mean, in a vacuum, I liked all of these things a fair amount. I just found the experience of watching it very tedious. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. It's interesting. I just spent a week in Italy at a philosophy seminar with uh, a very famous Italian philosopher named Giorgio Gombin. And it was interesting because I watched this movie while I was in the middle of this just intense philosophical exploration for for an entire week. And one of the seminars, so there were four sort of main speakers and then there were like 30 participants that every day would do workshops for about five or six hours. And then, of course, during lunches and afterwards and one of the threads, one of the seminars was themed around this something similar to this about the idea of the world and the identities and the things that we just presume sort of fading away. And I likened it to this pretty well-known French novel called uh, Nausea by Jean-Paul Sartre. And 
something similar sort of resonates with this film. So in a sense, what I mean is, is that I was just dispositionally inclined to love watching this film again. I had seen it previously. I thought it was a masterpiece, but because I was in Italy and because I was in the midst of thinking about certain philosophical themes about anxiety and dread and the sort of world receding and then finding those connections that are at the base of the void, so to speak, I, uh, I was I was in love with this film because it just seemed to fit so perfectly with everything else that we were exploring. Well, here's Italy. the thing, and honestly, this is not me trolling in any kind of way. This is yeah. a genuine, honest thing I'm saying. Yeah. I think the weird thing is I'm kind of sad here, and I think why I started just talking immediately about the directing and the acting and the production is because I'm not sure I feel I have that much to say about this film. Like, right. it's like I come to the end of it and I'm kind of like... It's about a certain kind of alienation and also the idea of humanity trying to find its way within this industrial landscape with the sort of loss of our relation to nature. And, you know, and that's kind of the broad strokes of what it is. I'm not really sure I got anything out of it beyond that. Mm. It's like and that's that's I mean, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I don't think films have to have like 10,000 resonant themes. I think it can. I think films can be. I mean, I, I think something like, for instance, I really love Spring Breakers. I think Spring Breakers has an incredibly simplistic, mm. you know, sort of uh, thesis that right. it's that it's putting forth. So I, I, I don't think like a simple thesis is necessarily a problem. I'm just not sure I really have that much more to say about it. And that's that's the weird thing is it's kind of like all I can talk about is that I was really impressed with the visual style of it. Mm. And I thought it 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 felt very sumptuous in terms of atmosphere i like i like the word but, sumptuous and i think it's interesting you bring up a film like spring breakers because obviously they're contextually very different uh, they 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 explore different themes in a sense but i do wonder so what is it about a film like spring breakers that is successful and maybe by subtraction we can then figure out exactly what it is so when you why well, like, i think like, why do you like spring breakers so much well i think i think because spring breakers plays towards my my enjoyment of style and imagery more. Mm. It's sort of, it's, um, and I think it, it plays, I'm probably the right crowd for spring breakers <laughs> as, as, as bad as that possibly sounds. <laughs> I find a fascination with the art and the grotesque, uh, you know, whereas it's like the idea of extremes. I find extremes fascinating mm. a lot of the time. So it's, um, so, I mean, you even, you know, we, we, we obviously talked about detention, on this film. And I sort of argued that I think detention is as much an art film as say something like red desert is. It's just a different type of art film. Right. I, I, I sort of try to steer away from elitism in films. And I right. try to not sort of say that because one thing is more high minded, therefore it necessarily has more relevance. Cause there's plenty of high minded, terrible shit out there. Sure. Um, but I suppose there's a kineticism and an energy to Spring Breakers. Spring Breakers is also only 90 minutes long, mm. um, which, again, I mean, I, 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 I'm possibly overstating things by saying, you know, this film could have been 30 minutes. But, I mean, I don't think this film would be any worse for being 90 minutes. I right. think, you know, I think you could cut 30 minutes out of this film very easily, um, so the, if, which if is you did, possibly an apocry apocryphal thing to say. Yeah, well, I'm sure someone who's like a hardcore Antonioni cinephile would probably maybe think that what i wonder then is could you 
Could you not say that the importance of the drawn-out length is also a sense in which um, it's necessary to explore dread and anxiety because, or to explore fear, just uh, in an unsettledness of being in your own body by articulating that very very same thing by drawing out the experience of anxiety on the screen so so that you actually sort of participate in that slow drawn out anxiety and i would say i think i think that that's kind of why i think the film is successful and why i think the length is kind of important um i agree with you sometimes i want just like just tightly packed quick uh not not just give it to me and get out but sometimes yeah just just kind of Express what you're trying to express. Um, cut away the trim. Cut away the fat. And I think certain films are better for that. Like, I don't know. For, for some reason, a few good men just popped into my head. But a film that has like you know why you know why because because you watch JSA <laughs> and JSA has some very maybe few good men elements to it. I wonder why. I wonder if that's it. My unconscious is making mm. these weird connections. But so a few good men just pops into my head. And one of the things I love about a few good men is that it's got. Um, a lot of drama. It's not a short movie, but it's actually a very long yeah, film. Long I think film. it's almost like two and a half hours. But for some reason, it seems to flow very well because there's not a lot of fat on it, right? There's a lot yeah. going on. It and moves, it very, moves quickly. very quickly, exactly. And so I think it's very different. Whereas, and and I think it might actually be interesting to compare that with this because it is like nothing much happens in A Few Good Men. I mean, a lot happens, but it doesn't happen. If that makes sense. So there's no like, there's like one scene where you see someone get fucked up. Um, and then it's all about like drama and the tension that. What's actually comes it's from that. it's a perfect case study for how you can make people in rooms talking to each other very compelling and very dynamic. That's Aaron Sorkin's like, whole thing, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of that's kind of the power of something like A Few Good Men. I mean, here's my problem, and I suppose it's kind of one of those issues where you would have to show me the edit where it was done this way as opposed to the way it's done now in order for me to say for sure. But there's a point where every scene to me feels like it's going on for two minutes longer than it needs to. It's just like, it's like that thing of, and I don't know. Here's, I can only come at this from my subjective point of view, of which is that I go through it and I'm sitting there like, yep, I got this. <laughs> All right. I've still got it. Yep. Okay. Yep. Uh-huh. Okay, can we move the fuck on now? And it's like that thing where I think what you might be getting out of it in terms of a feeling of dread or uneasiness, I'm getting out of it in terms of un impatience and mm. wanting to move forward. And I think it's actually interesting because I think these two films actually fundamentally sort of represent two very different sides <laughs> to us and how we uh, perceive and ingest film. And, you know... I, I think the thing about me is I am very plot focused. I'm very mm -hmm. concept focused. I want to be kind of moving forward perpetually. And I think it's a little bit, I have a slight uh, unease when I feel like the film is just sitting there and not, you know, really... Because, because I think, I think, I think the thing with something like this is it kind of want to, it kind of wants to bathe in its concepts. It doesn't want to check off the concepts. It wants to just sit in them, yeah. and that can be an uncomfortable thing sometimes if you are someone like me who likes there to be a constant forward momentum in mm. how things work. And the problem is again is that I sit there and I don't actually think it makes it a bad film. It's like, and uh, you know, and I, I've, I've come out in the past in terms of saying I don't like 
certain films because of this. Like, I didn't like... I mean, I, I, I said I didn't like John Domont largely because, to me, that felt like indulgent trash with very little to say. Um, which I know is, again, I'm sh- sure I am sound like a Philistine for saying that. <laughs> but I think there's a huge amount of wonderful craft in this. And I think it's very well put together. So there's a lot that I can get absorbed in mm. in terms of what I think is being done with the production here. You know, whereas to me, Jean Delmont feels like uh, an indulgent student film. You know, right. this doesn't feel like a student film to me. This feels much smarter than that. Mm. And I like the actress. I think she's compelling. I kept finding it weird that Richard Harris was in this movie <laughs> no, I was gonna, I was, and I was that nobody ask. ever points out that he's English. I was going to ask, actually. Yeah, what did you think about that? Because So basically, uh, for people listening, Richard Harris, the, the main character, her husband owns like this industrial plant or, works, or is like a high up. It's a high petrochemical up, yeah, plant petrochemical or something. Plant, yeah. and, uh, and Richard Harris is like one of his best friends. And so she ends up having an affair with him. Her husband goes on like a business trip and stuff like that. But I mean, almost like weirdly, weirdly saying she's having an affair with him sounds really overblown because most of the film is just them talking about in a sort of fairly halted way about their own inadequacies and discomforts with the world and uncertainties. And then kind of at the very end, like literally it's pretty much the climax of the film almost is, um, she comes around and then finally sort of like they actually hook up right. and it's it's you know not very romantic or anything like that no. like making it sound like it's it's like it's there's no kind of it's not like a tawdry love affair because I feel like if you, you you talk about like Italians having an affair it sounds <laughs> like it's going to be sweaty and exciting this is not at all sweaty and exciting it's it's actually far more awkward in English in nature yeah yeah it is actually in the sex scene itself is rather awkward too yeah, you know, um, uh, but um, and she she can't get any satisfaction out yeah, of this. This is kind satisfied. of like her unable to find satisfaction in anything, right? Which I think really interesting. There's um, there's a Charles Dickens novel car, called Our Mutual Friend, I believe, and mm-hmm. there's an, a, a little tale in it where there's this like vagabond who's um, he's like an outcast in the town and nobody really likes him and that's his role is he's just this beggar, right? But one day he falls ill and he, uh, it looks like he's going to die and the townspeople all rush to him and they help him and they're trying to revive him and then he gets better and then as soon as he gets better, they kind of go back to their day and start to treat him again as the unwanted. He's the outside, right? He, he's the outsider. It doesn't really matter. And uh, there's a philosopher named Gilles Deleuze, a French philosopher, who says that that moment, that's what the experience of life is with a capital L. It's this imminent connection with people and then of course at the moment of of death like that that's that moment that somehow unites everybody but then of course when that moment dissipates then you kind of just go back to your way of thinking i think that this film kind of explores something similar to that is that she it she is kind of stuck in this moment of dread maybe it's because of you know the the idea of of uh the clash of nature versus culture um, or humans living within an industrialized world, something along that. But the point is is that she's experiencing this dread. Maybe not everybody else's, but she's experiencing this. And she can't find any way to connect to life, if you will. And I think well, the interest- that even within the experience of sexuality, the reason that that, that doesn't actually satisfy is because it wasn't truly life. It was, it was her mm-hmm. and this English dude fucking just talking about how miserable they are. And, and yeah, empathy is important and connection is important, but that doesn't really solve anything, right? And so sex sometimes is viewed as, 
as this salvo that will give us this this passion and this pleasure. But all it does is really release some fucking dopamine. And yeah, it feels great and, and it's amazing, but is that the thing? Maybe there's something deeper and that's not going to solve the problem. Is There has to be something else that's going to actually overcome this anxiety and dread. Well, can I, can I make a, a, a possibly slightly controversial statement here? Yeah, of course, um, please. I think... I actually think that there's a real beauty in the industrialized imagery. Mm. Like, I think that, like, it's shot in this really grandiose way. It feels, I mean, it's it's shot to feel very big and imposing. And I think, to me, and I don't know if this is purely my reflection on it, but I look at that and I say there's a real beauty in the power and the scale of what human accomplishment has. Mm. Um and I'm and I and I sort of look at it and I go, there's a lot of people being filmed kind of small within this industrial world, mm. you know, and I kind of wonder, is there any possibility that Antonioni's also kind of marveling a little bit at the scale of what mm. human accomplishment has has built? Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree at all. And maybe the idea is then from within that perspective that it's easy to get lost as an individual well, within that. Well, especially in since the final thesis is kind of this idea of it's less about, I mean, I think it's interesting that the final point is not, Oh, look, the industry is killing off the birds. It's like the birds learn to live with it. And that's mm. kind of like, and I, and I think there's something interesting in that idea of saying that actually maybe she's the problem. Mm. It's not the industry that's the problem because the industry represents in many ways um, jobs. It represents uh, growth, rebuilding. I mean, if you think about it, okay, if you contextualize this within Italy, Italy obviously had been through a fascist dictatorship, was completely decimated in World War II. I mean, a lot of where the Italian neorealist you know, movement comes out of is filming Italy in the wake of this huge disaster yeah, and, rebuilding. you know, dealing with the destruction. So actually, in many ways, this industrial, um, this this sort of building of industrialism actually represents a lot of really positive things for um, Italy as a country. And so in a strange way, there's a little part of me that wonders if maybe some of what Antonioni's saying at the end of it is actually humanity changes and so does and and industry comes from that and humanity has to learn to recontextualize itself within that and that she has to learn to be like the birds and adapt hmm yeah i'm that that actually sounds like a really beautiful interpretation of the film because um because yeah maybe she is too stuck within that that uh trying to seek nature or or maybe it's rather that she's just feeling the displacement of the speed and scale with which industry has propped up and that it isn't necessarily about nature as being better than, but it's just this idea that the speed with which nature, or I'm sorry, the speed with which industry has has come to dominate sort of disrupts the rhythms of, of nature. Um, and yeah, and that the birds have just been far better at adapting to it. So, and I think it's really interesting. It's really relevant for stuff that's going on today, right? There's all these studies and all this, uh, all this speculation about whether or not social media and our uh, smartphones and the the speed of information technology 
are ultimately good for our bodies, you know? And so you have some people that say, ah, it's not good because it actually creates disconnection or it's not good because it actually creates like uh, hyper attention deficit types of individuals. And the question is, is, is it good or is it bad? I mean, maybe that's the wrong way of framing the question at the outset. When it's possible, again, that there's a, a Rorschach element to this, like someone like you who wants to be Walden and go sit by a stream and write your philosophical thoughts in a notebook, you know, mm-hmm. you look at this film and might go, oh, yes, this is about the how much civilization is imposing on the human condition. And then I look at it as someone who uh, believes nature is chaos and that we built civilization so that humanity could survive outside of nature. Uh, I'm looking at it as actually this is a testament to humanity and how we as humans are imminently adaptable. I mean, like it's it's there's an element too to which I think it's open to be read. How you know it's it's a somewhat of a reflection of the viewer. Mm. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, I agree with that. And I actually don't think that either of those ideas are wrong. Yeah, I mean, I do have that Walden romanticism. But at the same time, I I am a city guy. You know, I enjoy bars and I enjoy social community. So I don't like the idea of isolation, you know, in that. You don't want to be what's-his-face from um, Things to Come? (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's right. No, no, no. Or or like uh, fucking Emile Hirsch in Into the Wild. Like... That's what happens when you go out and you do fucking the the Walden thing. You eat poisonous berries and you die, you know? Well, again, like, you know, you're... (laughs) And, you know, you, you start, like, romanticizing people like Jack London, and then you realize right. that Jack London was a rich guy who went to Alaska once his entire life. You know, it's like, it's... <laughs> right. You realize that that romanticization is exactly that. It's romanticization. Yeah, and, um, and honestly, when you think about things uh, from an actual perspective, what's the difference between an anthill and a skyscraper? Really, the difference is just degrees of complexity, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I don't think that if you think of in terms of actually at its level of what philosophers call ontology, its actual level of being, um, that what is different between the anthill and the skyscraper is just that ants use different types of technology. They use different resources. They use different material. Skyscrapers, same sort of thing. Humans use brains in a different way than ants use their mentality, whatever you want to call what they what they use for cognition or thought or, or agency. And the only difference is, is that we're using maybe more complex materiality than what they're using with just sand or whatever. So it's kind of both ends. So I actually am glad that you mentioned that bit because I think that that might be that might be an interesting way of looking at it. And I wonder if then the anxiety or the dread that we're meant to experience isn't so much that nature is good, industry is bad, but it's just that this woman is struggling to kind of find her place in the midst of industry as uh, a sort of as a as a different moment of the unfolding of nature and that the reason that she can't adapt whereas those birds have in that moment or the reason that she can't cope and that the birds can in that in that final bit is that the birds have learned to adapt whereas maybe humans uh oftentimes have a have a difficulty because you don't really see birds dealing with anxiety at least i don't think scientists have discovered bird anxiety i'm sure they have other issues that they're dealing with but like i don't know if existential dread is something that birds experience so well, um, let me ask you: Have you seen much else in the way of Antonioni's other work? Um, I have only ever seen bits and pieces, and I'm trying to remember the names of them off the top of my head. Um, I think I saw well, I, I saw, like I saw La Ventura. Yeah, 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 and I and I've seen La Ventura and Lenot. Uh, 
So I've seen those, but no, I don't think I ever saw. Um, I don't think I saw Blow Up. Because this is kind of like this was the end of like um, four films that he made with um, the actress uh, Monica Vitti. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, I I don't know if those all have some kind of thematic through line or resonance or what i mean i know this was his first color film but um i mean i don't know a lot about antonioni yeah i wouldn't be able to i'm not an antonioni expert either i do know that he obviously is known as being a very um i guess important and not shocking but very controversial in the sense that he pressed things into a new direction and he explored Mm you know, sexuality and certain themes of humanity in a way that were quite controversial, especially in Catholic Italian Italy in the 1960s, right? Well, I think that's the interesting thing is I think I've heard that. And then when I watch this, it's so... Tame? Um, I don't even want to say tame. It's just very... Um, it's... I still feel like sterile is not a right thing to say, but it's very low key mm. in terms of its, I mean, I think it's really level. It's the, the visuals are really designed in a really lovely fashion. Right. And I think actually that's what I ended up enjoying the most about it was just the visual side of it. But it's, you know, it's a film I found hard. I, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I found it hard to get through. Mm. It was like, there were definitely points where I kind of wanted to just skip two minutes and see if it was still, if they were still on the same scene. Yeah. Um, hey, you texted me at one point when you were watching, you said, I'm not going to lie. I'm pretty bored. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and I think that's it. I think I struggle to get absorbed in these things in the same way you do. Mm. Um, but I think, I think the thing that I wanted to be very, about because I feel like sometimes when we talk about these films is that we end up sort of more talking about the experience of watching them rather than the films themselves is I wanted to make sure we actually talked about the actual film rather than just why I did or didn't like it <laughs> as an experience right exactly um, so I mean I just I just want to quickly say too I mean what's your I mean, do you um, do you have any sort of predilection towards Richard Harris or any sort of thoughts on him as an actor? Because he's actually, I weirdly realized he's someone who I know the name and I've known him from like him popping up in things like, say, Harry Potter or when he was in like Unforgiven and stuff like that. But he's not an actor, especially at this period of time, that I have much familiarity with. Yeah, I mean, I don't have really anything either hot or cold to say about Richard Harris. Again, like you say, he's someone who pops up and you see him and you're like, oh, it's Richard Harris. Uh, good to see him. He does does. Oh my a solid God, look, job. it's Jared Harris's dad. <laughs> I mean, he always does a solid job, um, but he isn't someone that, and I don't know, maybe in the 60s he was a fucking hot stud and maybe that's why he was brought into this and I just am ignorant of that history. He doesn't like, he feels like he's like supposed to be a kind of stuffy guy though. He doesn't feel like he's supposed to be like sexy man that you're desperate to like get it on with or anything right. like that. He's supposed to, I think, you know, he's, I mean, maybe I'm just projecting the awkward Englishman on him, but that's kind of what I feel like. And I mean, I don't think that's what he was in real life. Cause he was like famous as like a carouser and a boozer and an alcoholic and like him and like Peter O'Toole used to go on huge benders together. So, I mean, like, <laughs> I mean, like he's like, so that wasn't him there but i i don't know i also found it very peculiar that there was never any mention of the fact that he's english in the film mm. at all and then they just seem to imply that he was italian because they brought up that he was born 
I think it was like Bologna or somewhere like that. And then they said he moved somewhere else in Italy, uh, but they never like mentioned him being English in any kind of a way. So I just was like, are we just supposed to think he's Italian? Yeah. Cause he also doesn't look very Italian. He does either. not look very Italian. Yeah. No, he's not tan enough. <laughs> Maybe in the sixties, they just didn't give a fuck. Maybe in they the were kind of like, yeah. Open borders, man. doesn't matter where you're from. doesn't matter what you sound like. No, so I mean, is there anything uh, in particular, just before we move on, that you uh, found strongest? Would it have been the landscapes, the cinematography? Would it have been oh, the, the cinematography colors? is definitely the thing. Yeah. The cinematography is what kind of got me through it, right? Um, because, I, like I said, I mean, I find some of these ideas interesting. I'm not sure they were interesting in a "this is really keeping my interest for two hours" kind of way, but it was. Especially the shack. I found the shack really hard to get through. But it was, I thought, but I did find, so anytime there was these sort of big industrial images, I kind of, you know, I found it interesting in the same way that, say, watching something like Kayo Niscati is kind of interesting, you know, and it's all of these kind of big um, sort of well-shot industrial landscapes. Um, I don't know, and I and I, I I think again, my brain kind of pricked up again when we got into like the dream s- sequence or the story of the girl at the beach and how it's so because again it, it's just so sumptuously shot in right. this kind of real um, visual beautiful visual way where the the water just looks so blue mm. and the sand just looks the sand looks it's got tinges of pink on it mm. and it's but it just it looks. So beautiful, except for the fact that it, it really made me feel a little bit weird because I think that girl looked about 13 and then there's a bit where she like takes her her, her bikini top off and I'm kind of <laughs> like, this this doesn't feel right. I'm, I feel very weird right now. I was in Italy. Fucking Italians, I, man. No, like I said, I was in Italy for a week, right? And let me just tell you that on their Italian beaches, you, the people, they just don't care. It doesn't matter what your body is. It doesn't really matter how old you are. I saw a woman, uh, you know, a mother just kind of like change out of her bikini top and put another top on, but not even like go behind a curtain or a blanket or a towel or anything. Just kind of, she popped her boobs out and just put on another top over it. And then I saw an old dude who was in a Speedo. But you know how there's like the, like a, like what, what like Michael Phelps would wear, where you don't really yeah. see anything. It's just kind of sleek, and because it's black, and because yeah. the material's nice and thick, you don't actually see the mm-hmm. outline. Now, this dude had like a gray, saggy Speedo on, where I saw the head of his penis through his Speedo. Ooh. So it was a little weird. And then you saw naked babies running around everywhere. And well, it's okay. It's like, topless, it's like this difference, children, though. It's like, like topless it's like from about the things. age to, from about the age of like zero to like, I don't know, maybe 11 or 12. I'm kind of, you know, okay. But as soon as it's like the puberty, as soon as the puberty hits until they're 18, suddenly I feel weird. It's yeah, like, it's, you know, so that's that's that was kind of like so that was just that weird moment where I was kind of like I don't I don't, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> feel I should be watching this right now. This feels this feels a little bit uncomfortable. See, good. You know, it was like it's that. Is that definitely that kind of no sex please were British kind of feel to it. <laughs> right. Well, then Antonio, he he shocked you a little. Good, 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 good. There was a little discomfort. Do you want to see 
살려주세요. 이 남은 하람 뭘까? 전투 있을 기가 없어. 얼마나 침착한가? 얼마 침착하고 대담하게 행동하네. 제 5의 인물이 존재했다는 거야. 오케이, okay, so we're on to our next film, JSA, or Joint Security Area. The film concerns the demilitarized zone between South and North Korea, um, which was formed at the end of the Korean War. Uh, there is a murder on the North Korean side of the line, um, which is perpetrated by uh, a South Korean soldier. So they bring in um, a woman from Switzerland who is of Korean descent, um, but was raised in Switzerland, and she has to investigate and find out who was responsible for this murder, even though both sides have conflicting stories. And so as the film Did goes they bring on, her in because Switzerland is notoriously neutral, so she's like, well, yeah, no, that's the idea is that yeah. Switzerland and Sweden are sort of running the neutral, um, the, the sort of neutral investigation because obviously they can't have America do it, um, and they can't have China do it. They need two countries that are completely Perfect, yeah. um, outside of the con- outside of the conflict. So obviously she's uh, she's um, she's needed in it because she speaks Korean and she is um, but is obviously coming from a neutral country. But anyway, um, point is that what as about sort of thirty minutes into the investigation, we flash back and see the story of how the sort of through a sort of incident where one of the South Korean soldiers accidentally stepped on a mine in a demilitarized zone and is helped out by two North Korean soldiers. Um, he ends up forming a sort of odd friendship, and they sort of tentatively start communicating with each other across the bridge, um, which kind of separates the two sides, um, which gets to the point where he starts sneaking over at night and kind of hanging out, and they drink, and they kind of have a very tenuous kind of relationship where they don't really speak about politics and they sort of befriend each other. Eventually he also brings his other friend over, and they all kind and the four of them kind of form a buddy group. However, um, when an incident sort of happens where they get discovered and uh, it's sort of really fascinating because essentially it's kind of everything sort of suddenly devolves back into political rhetoric. There's a really, really sort of tense standoff, which ends in an unfortunate, tragic set of circumstances where all of the uh, where um, two of the guys get shot. One of the North Korean guys gets wounded, and the two um, the two South Korean guys um, uh, make it back over. Um, one of the guys then kills himself. Um, you know, rather than rather than sort of admit what they had been doing, and um, yeah, and then finally there's a kind of agreed upon story where, um, and it kind of ends in this kind of uh, way where essentially. Um, the uh, you know we find out what the truth was, but there's kind of an official story that's given to sort of smooth everything over. Mm. Um, and the film deals a lot with obviously the uncomfortable. I mean, what do you call it? Uh, you know, a, a truce. It's technically a truce because technically, you know, the Korean War never actually ended um, between North and South, and goes into a lot of what the 
I suppose, kind of heavy rhetoric of the North Korean side, along with the, um, along with, you know, the, you know, the difference between North and South Korea, and, yeah, and I mean, I think it's also, because as, as of recording this, um, North Korea just launched a missile over Japan, so, I mean, it seems like actually it's a fairly relevant topic Wait, to be talking about. Wait, did this happen today? Uh, that happened yesterday. No shit. Yeah, it's yeah, interesting. Yeah. When you chose this film, and it just so happens to be our World War Film 3, I was wondering if it was intentional because of the sort of tension, if you will, the Cold War type of tension mm-hmm. that's going on right now with North Korea that could initiate World War 3. Well, and it's it's interesting because, of course, this film was made in 2000. Um, so it sort of says how... 17 years later you know how little has changed um but no and i i I actually thought actually i mean i'll lay my cards on the table the entire reason i picked this film was basically because i needed a south korean film and i needed something that was in the 70s range and um this was the only south korean film i could find that was as low as in the 70s range that i that i actually would want to talk about yeah i'm really i will say this after watching the film i'd never seen this film before um after watching this film i was surprised i thought i remember you saying it was in the 70s i was surprised it was that low I I'm surprised it's that low, actually, because it was funny, because um, I'm also going to say something which is possibly a little bit controversial here. I'd actually never watched this film before until I until oh, today, I yeah, yeah. until yesterday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm I'm a huge Park Chan Wook fan, but I'd never watched this one mostly because I'd been told it's more like his more mainstream film that he did before he kind of became Park Chan Wook. Um, and I actually, I loved this film. I thought it was, I thought it was great. Um, yeah. so I mean, I think, so let's just say from a filmmaker's perspective, it's really interesting to see somebody's later polished works, you know, yeah. and then you go back and you watch their earlier films cause you can see some of their experimentation with things that they've either discarded or that they have maintained and that have stuck all the way through. Um, I mean, he even goes to like first person shooter at one point, you know? Yeah. And uh, it's really his experimentation and his use of different types of form and style and, and pace and things like that are really interesting. Um, you didn't really get like the huge plot twists that you would get like say in uh, uh, Old Boy or in Handmaiden. But, but it does have but like it does his. Have, um, it does, but it does have his interesting kind of like non chronological storytelling. Yeah, it, and yeah. I mean, I know it's based off a book called DMZ, which was okay. a South Korean thriller, which I I couldn't find any information about, so I don't know how close it is. And I know, for instance, when he did um, The Handmaiden, he adapted the structure directly from the book. So I don't know if this is a case of him looking at a a property and saying this could work in a non-chronological fashion or him saying him being attracted to the property because of its non-chronological fashion. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then I think for me, I think one of the things that I'm really bored with about movies, I actually had a long set of conversations about this over the past week with some with some dudes, and I've been really bored with so much, and you and I have talked about this too, with the sort of oversaturation of content that's coming out in the age of Netflix or in the age of information technology. And so I feel like there's so much that's coming out, but so much of it is just a reproduction of the same sort of thing whether it's the same stories that we're telling, but just with different character names, 
or the same style, but just within a different plot narrative or, or a different plot. Um, it, it just all seems the same to me, and I'm so bored. And so for me, I think one of the things that I found so refreshing about this film was, one, it took place in a world that is so different from a, from my everyday, you know? Oh, yeah, no, definitely. And two, it took place in a world where the stakes are so high and so palpable that it made me immediately concerned for everything that was going on on screen. Yeah. Um, there's this one scene. It's a very simple little scene, but it's these tourists that are walking from one of the offices to the next, and it's like this white woman. I don't know where she's from, but her fucking hat blows off, right? And she's yeah. on, she's on the South Korean side, and her hat blows off, and it lands on the North Korean border, and I mean just like a foot across the border, maybe not even a foot, yeah. like just on the other side of the line, and she like kind of instinctually runs towards her hat that just got blown away in the wind, like you would, but then she stops realizing that you can't cross that line. And there's yeah. this North Korean soldier who's standing there all stern and he's done up in his, his outfit and he walks over very slowly and he reaches down and picks up the hat. And you're thinking, is he just going to like fucking turn and throw it, throw it on his side? Is he just going to walk away with it? Is he going to be an asshole? What's he going to do? And he's actually kind of soft and he kind of almost. Well, that's. Yeah, well, that's that's the thing, too, is that's because that's Song Kang-ho. Right, right. The sort of main our, our main sort of North Korean guy protagonist. Yeah. And he's fascinating because I feel like at no point in the movie do I really know where he's at. Like, I don't. And it's like because they have this whole backstory of the fact that he's been abroad and he's been like to all types of different war zones. He's seen a lot of the world, but he still seems to spout the kind of the party line. Mm -hmm. And you kind of wonder. But there's this little thing going on underneath him where you feel like there's something else going on with him like he's clearly like his buddy feels much more like a simple-minded guy who's just bought the party line and doesn't really know anything but this guy knows more Mm. he's not just he's not just gone with the party line and said and there's there's an interesting thing like i loved the scene where he gives him like uh what they call that like a cocoa pie or it's like it's like a chocolate bar Mm. or some some sort of like it's like a moon pie or something like (laughs) that and he's like eating it he's like oh this is like the, and they, they have this sort of running theme of the the, the, the Americans make such good stuff. Um, <laughs> and he kind of like, and um, uh, Lee Boing Hun, I'm sorry, I'm going to butcher people's names, who's the, our main sort of uh, South Korean protagonist, he kind of says to him, um, well, you know, why don't, why don't you come over to the South mm. and like you can eat as many chocolate pies as you want. <laughs> and he just stops and he spits it out into his hand and he says... I will, I will, um, I will eat these when my country makes better candy or something like that. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. he phrases it better than that, but that's that. And I, and I thought that was interesting because there's some kind of loyalty to this idea of his homeland. And you kind of think, I don't know if he's, I don't know if he's what he's doing going along with the party is just because he has enough love for his country to believe that he will do what is best for his country. And part of that is serving in the military, serving his country, and that he doesn't necessarily believe that the great leader is the great leader or whatever. Um, but it's just like I never – I and it's, it's like I kept waiting. I kept thinking the film was going to give me some kind of more hint to it, but it stays kind of ambiguous mm. all the way through what his actual feelings are because you just know he's there's something more to him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you see that 
when he gives the hat back, right? Oh, yeah. He gives the hat back, and there's, like, almost a little smirk, a, a softness. Yeah. Now, he doesn't give it to the woman, which is interesting. He gives it to the soldier, who then gives it yeah. to the woman. So it would have been really interesting, I thought, if he would have given it directly to the woman. Yeah. But because giving it to the soldier, there's still that intermediary, right? Um, so maybe that's the step too far. Like he couldn't connect straight with this this other person. But there was something really interesting in that. And you see that again. There's that bit in the snow where they have that cigarette. Yeah. Um, which is also kind of nice. You know, there's – and you're – I don't know. There's always – this. It's, is he a spy? Is he a double agent? Is he going to, like, turn around and, and do something that is going to just kind of disrupt this whole friendship and that he's not actually friends? But no, it's like there's the war within, and uh, I think it's really – he's a really interesting character. He's probably the most interesting character. Uh, him, well, I thought – Him and then the, the woman, who I can't remember her name, um, I thought were really, were really fascinating. Well, I think uh, – well, the character's name is Major Sophie E. Jean. Yeah, that one. Um, Sophie. But I, I think um, I think the thing that I think is really interesting too is it reminded me a lot of the story of the Christmas truce in World War One. Oh yeah. Of, and it's that idea of beyond the idea of the rhetoric and the uniforms and the you know the the idealism, we are just common humans and we have common things so it's like and it is there's almost there's this childish way with which they all bond with each other and you know that you see them playing like these weird like footsie games <laughs> and like looking it's like and it's like he has like the porn magazine and you know <laughs> stuff like that and right. you know and it's like there is something very adolescent in the way that they they relate to each other because as soon as anything becomes too adult too serious that's when the politics come back in. And mm. you can see almost them trying to steer away from the politics a lot of the time. Well, in that sense, I think that there's some similarity with Red Desert in that there are these roles or these fixtures of the world that you find yourself in. So in Red Desert, mm. it's the industrialized world. It's your identity as, yeah. as mother, as wife, as whatever. And there, and then in Joint Security Area, it's there are these fixtures as I'm a North Korean citizen, I'm a North Korean soldier, uh, I'm a South Korean citizen, I'm a South Korean soldier. And then, of course, there are all those relations that strengthen your identities within your various worlds, uh, and then the worlds that kind of all sort of clash or intermix with one Whoa. another. And then there's that that through line that cuts through that. And there are those yeah. moments where it's, no, that we're just human, or we're just animals, or we're just here, or whatever it is that we just exist. There's that something that connects. But the problem is, is that connection, you experience it for a second, and then it goes away. And then those. Well, it's the so power fascinating how much worlds. everything falls apart at the yeah, end. Yeah, exactly. It's it's amazing how the power of the worlds rip apart that commonality so easily and so starkly. Yeah, and it's 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 really interesting too because I started thinking of it a little bit from the context of say an alternative history. Say um, the South managed to su oh. successfully secede from the Union, and then you look That's at probably that why Tarantino kind of loves this film so much, right? Uh, possibly, I don't know, <laughs> but it's like, but it, it's, it's like that weird thing where you suddenly think about, okay. Cause that, that's the interesting thing is I, I don't know why, but it suddenly really hit me. I'm kind of like, these guys all speak the same language. They're not mm. like foreigners to each other in the right. same way that like, it is like, say if the Northern United States and the Southern United States just suddenly drew a border and said, we're two different countries now. Yeah. And that's what I, I don't know why, but 
That had, and I think it's because I've always grown up with the idea of the difference between North and South Korea. And it, for some reason, it never really occurred to me while thinking about it how much it's like, no, this is one country that's been divided into two mm. very different um, political ideologies. Yeah. You know, um, and it's and it's interesting, too, like you hear the constant rhetoric of the uh, you are a puppet of the American scum, you know, this this idea of that these people are still par- these these people none of these guys were born when the Korean War was happening right. but they're still passing down the same catchphrases and mm. rhetoric over and over again i mean the yeah, no the USSR doesn't exist anymore mao's china doesn't exist anymore <laughs> but they're still parroting those same mm. talking points yeah. you know and it's no and I, I i i think actually as much as i was sort of saying i find the um I find acting hard to judge in foreign languages sometimes. I, I found, like, the two leads in this very, very compelling. Oh, yeah. I, I thought... I thought everyone was fantastic. I mean, obviously, yeah. some of the bit parts, but I, I never really judge a film too much on, on supporting well, I, it's, Weirdly, it's it's one of those ones, again, it's a little bit like Eden, where I found the English speakers, like, the weakest parts of it, <laughs> because you could... I mean, and I, and I think part of it might just be Chan... I don't know how good Chan Park... Uh, Park Chan Wooks... Sorry, I was... Never know quite which way I'm supposed to say it. Park Chan Wook's um, uh, English was at that point, um, but it feels very stilted. Those scenes don't feel like they flow very easily. Um, I think partially because they just got whatever English speaking actors they could, yeah, and yeah. it doesn't feel very. And I feel she doesn't have a very good grasp of English mm-hmm. because I feel like she sounds like she's talking more phonetically than actually talking with knowing what she's saying. Right. Um, so those scenes don't work as well. But as soon as they're speaking in Korean, everything just flows and comes alive. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I and I think. Song Kang Ho. I mean, he's uh, he's in the host. Uh, he works again with Park Chan Wook in um, Thirst. You know, he's in Snowpiercer. Um, I think he's a great actor. I really. He's also he's also in um, Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. Um, I I think he's a great actor. I um I really really like him. Um, now, which in in um in Park Chan Wook's uh, 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 Au Revoir, where does this film come? This is pretty early on in his career, right? This is pretty early on. Like, so have you seen this films is the first earlier? movie of his that I know about, really. Like, okay. if I look at his, there's some films listed in his, um, so looking at his Wikipedia page, he has uh, a film called Trio and The Moon is the Sun's Dream. Before this? I don't, before this. Okay. One was 1997, one was 1992. I don't okay. know what those are. So, like, so this I've always is really kind of, his first film. This is kind of what everyone knows is his debut. Okay. You know, okay. this is like his proper debut. And it, this was a huge phenomenon in South Korea. It was the highest grossing film in South Korea at the time. Mm. Um, and then kind of, so it was kind of the thing that first kind of like got him popularity. And then he made Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, which was, I think, the kind of thing that pushed him in a big way on the international stage. And I think... I could be wrong, but I think Joint Security Area didn't actually get a lot of attention until after Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance and Old Boy had come out. Okay. And they were kind of like people. I think that's when it kind of got more of an international release. Um, but yeah, I mean, so he goes and he makes his sort of vengeance trilogy, which is kind of like. And that's the interesting thing, because I think Joint Security Area, obviously, it's based on, I think, a popular novel. So in many ways, it's like the South Korean version of, say, something like, I don't know, um, 
the girl with the dragon tattoo being made or something like that. It's mm. like a, it's it's like somebody capitalizing on a cultural phenomenon, and then, and I think that's the interesting thing. In many ways, it kind of feels like akin to say something like the general's daughter or one of those kind of like or you know something like a few good men. It's a kind of pot boiler thriller in the nineties, except right. it's got a more it's 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 more interesting because of the context of where it's set. Yeah, that's you the know. thing. Uh, I, I can't remember. I, I read an article recently about, I think it was the highest grossing film in China right now or something. And it was about a military conflict that the United States was involved with, but it all takes place obviously from within the context of a different region. And I was yeah. reading about it and, and kind of just how they addressed it. And it was so interesting because it makes me want to explore World War Two, World War One, the Korean War, Vietnam, all of these international incidents from the side that isn't the American side, you know? Like, yeah, I love to watch Rocky and see Rocky beat up, you know, the, the mean, evil Soviet, of course, in Rocky Four. That's, who doesn't love that, right? Yeah, go America. It gets the blood boiling and gets you all patriotic and shit like that. But at the same time, I think it'd be really interesting to watch more cinema, from my perspective, from the side of the Soviet Union and how did they view the United States and from the side of not just Mao's China, but let's say, you know, the, after the fall of, of like the Cultural Revolution and, and stuff like that, where uh, China kind of opens up and becomes a sort of uh, capitalist player on the international market. I'd love to look at at incidents and things like that that oftentimes are still viewed from uh, America's the police of the world and we got to make sure everybody's in line rather you than should watch a, You should watch a 2003 South Korean film called Brotherhood okay. which is uh, a, about the Korean War but an actual, it's an actual Korean film about the Korean War. Yeah. And this is, this is like this is a little bit the argument I made during Dunkirk is when we talk about Dunkirk as well. I'm kind of like if you want a film about India in World War II. I don't think it's up to the British film industry to make that. Uh, India has its own film industry. They can make a damn film about war, India, India's involvement in World War II if they want to. Right. You know, and I think that's it. I think there's a little bit where I'm kind of like, it's not the American film industry's responsibility to make these films. There are plenty of countries that can make these films themselves, and they do, and you should go seek them out. Exactly. Go seek them out is the big thing. And I think, and unfortunately, it, a lot of people don't. But in the age of the internet, fuck, man, it's not that hard to find these things now. Well, and then that's especially too because I feel like the sort of huge boom in the South Korean film industry sort of came, sort of with came partially through the internet, through people being able to find these things much more easily. Hundred percent. You know, yeah. and I think like I think that that's the thing that I really like about um, I really like about what you know you know i i I like seeing that different perspective on it but i like that sort of authentic perspective on it i want to see an american film made about this i want to see a south korean film made about this yes exactly exactly 100 percent. and i'd really be interested to see a north korean film made about this because you know that things are so controlled by the state and it would be just a propaganda piece so it would be really interesting then to see how do they view this demilitarized zone? How do they view the conflict? Do they just see South Koreans as the other? And it would be really nice then if you could have a North Korean director who, one, was towing the party line, but at the same time had a human sympathy for the other side. Someone like the, the main uh, character, the North Korean main character in this film. I'm not sure that's... 
a possibility that that could ever be made. Maybe not at the um, moment. Maybe not at the moment, mm-hmm. but eventually. That would be really interesting to see, mm-hmm. you know? I think I, I think you could only do that outside of North Korea. Probably. Like, I think you could see the experience. You could have someone do, show the experience of North Korea, but that's not going to get made in North Korea. You no, have to, not like, now. No, you um, get in trouble for and that. And I think... And, I, and I, I actually think this film, because obviously this is a, a hot issue in South Korea. So it's kind of like it's, I think, at least from my perspective, I thought this film walked a really good line. I don't think it felt like a demonization of North Korea in any kind of a way. No, not um, at all. Which, and I, and I, I, I think it's, it's actually its goal at all times is sort of ambiguity and complexity. And I actually think the thing that I really liked is... That last shot, which is kind of a photo from the perspective of a photographer who's kind of uh, trying to quickly steal some pictures of mm. the of the border, and you sort it sort of zooms around, and you can kind of see the main guy, uh, sort of um, the uh, the the. Sorry, one second. You just have. Okay. You can see Song Kang Ho, and he's kind of like smiling, mm. you know. And then you can, and then they zoom in in the background. You can see his buddy, um, who is also kind of he's marching, but again he's kind of laughing at what's happening. Mm. And then you know you zoom out, and you see uh, Lee Byung Hung is the guy who's trying to stop him. And you kind of, and it's that thing of that framing of them all together in that one image again kind of without like the border in sight or anything like that it's it's, mm. it's again this notion of that these guys are all guys that could you take away the uniforms you take away the rhetoric and they're all part of the same kind of culture and same kind of well not same culture but same background same they're history all, they're yeah. all koreans but yeah there's, same there's, history. there's an ethnic identity that has been severed because of internal divisions and that those internal divisions have then solidified into these identities, these cultural identities that themselves, they're malleable. They, they could be different and they probably should be different. Quickly too, like, cause we should, we should wrap this up soon, yeah. but um, we haven't actually talked at all really about um, uh, the main character, well, the sort of main female lead, um, uh, major Sophie Jean. Yes. Um, I'm, I think her name is the actress's name is Lee Young A. I'm again. I'm. I'm. Forgive me for my terrible pronunciation. She looked really things. familiar to me. She's also in Sympathy for Lady Vengeance. Okay. No, sorry. It's just Lady Vengeance. It's not called Sympathy for Lady Vengeance. Yeah. It's just called Lady Vengeance. Um, or maybe it is. It's gets weirdly titled different things. I can't remember. But it's sympathy, anyway. Yeah, she's sympathy, Lady Vengeance. Yeah, Sympathy for Lady Vengeance. Yeah, she's Lady Vengeance. Okay. Um. But yeah, um, and she's, I don't think she's actually, according to this, she's mostly done television since then. Like she hasn't really done much outside of that. Like she's, um, but it's kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because she's someone who, when you first meet her, she's speaking in English and it's very stilted. And I, I kind of had an immediate reaction of, oh, have I made a mistake here? (laughs) Um, but I think once she gets into 
once they, they get into speaking Korean again, it starts to really sort of flow to me. And I think it's really interesting, this perspective of having this person who is, of course, the same ethnic background as these two characters, but comes from a completely different perspective in the fact that she's been raised outside of the country, away from the conflict, yeah. and bring her in. It's, a, it's another, it's a very interesting dynamic because you feel she is somewhat in over her head because they've kind of given this to her and said, you're Korean, you'll get this. But she's not lived there. She's not really been part of this conflict. So she's naive somewhat to what she's stepping into. Hmm. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, see, I didn't have a problem with the stilted English. And it's because I knew that she wasn't an English speaker. And yeah. I kind of forgave her for that. Uh, and I assume I wasn't even criticizing her for it, to be honest. It was more just I had a moment where I was kind of like, oh, shit, is this going to be a lot of the film? The is movie. the film going to be like this? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And the English is pretty sparing in it. So you don't really need to worry. So it doesn't really become a problem. Not at all. Yeah, not at all. And for me, it like, you know me, I'm a, I'm a stickler for for acting and it takes me out of a movie rather quickly. And it didn't. I didn't have that problem at all with this. And plus, there's something about Park Chan Wook's films that they sort of exhibit a hyper realism. But that actually, I'm, that's the thing I'm that okay. I thought was interesting. I didn't think this film exhibited that much of a hyper realism. I actually thought this felt much more like a sort of streamlined American thriller in terms of how it was. Um, in terms, of, like you didn't have like the bigness of what you have in say like Old Boy. You know, right. you didn't have these sort of big exaggerated parts. Everybody kind of felt like a fairly. Everybody felt like they were playing everything kind of fairly nuanced and realistic. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that his friend is maybe a little bit goofy, but that's that's about <laughs> sure. it. Sure. Yeah. And and the events are all based on actual historical things, although fictionalized. There is yeah. something there, but but maybe I just uh, automatically go in with lenience with Park Chan Wook mm-hmm. because I'm like, maybe I just ima- assume that he's a genius, and so everything he's yeah. doing is intentional. Does that make sense? I, I I'm kind of the same way. Like I feel like I just go to a Park Chan Wook film and I just marvel at everything. Yeah. So I don't like, but it's and even here, like, because the thing is, I I didn't actually like Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance that much. Um, it's by far my least favorite Park Chan-wook film that I've seen. And it's quite funny because I always describe myself as a Park Chan-wook fan. And then when we did the old boy episode, I was like really embarrassed because I realized like I'd only actually watched like old boy and Stoker. Um, Mm. And so I've kind of been making up for it since then. Like, so I've watched the whole vengeance trilogy. Obviously the handmaiden came out since then. Um, I've watched um, and now I've watched this. And so the only film of his I haven't seen is thirst. Um, I was going to ask actually because I hear. Th- oh, wait, sorry, no, I've not seen I'm a Cyborg, but that's okay. Right. That's the uh, that's his that's his sort of weird comedy one. Okay. Um, yeah, I was going to ask if you've seen Thirst because that, that I haven't seen that either, and people tell me that it's amazing. Thirst is next on my list, okay. um, but I feel like I feel like I'm not going to like I'm a Cyborg, but that's okay. But but that's okay. But that's okay. Um, <laughs> um, but no, but I was, and the thing is, to me, is sympathy for Mr. Vengeance actually has a very stilted style to it Mm. and i was surprised going back to this actually how much more like it almost feels to me like sympathy for mr vengeance is the film that came before this and this is the film he made before old boy because Mm. you know like some of just like his just really uh kinetic cool camera movements are just like there i mean like that bit where um where uh private uh was private nam he jumps out of the window and it kind of stays on a close-up of his, his face. And it sort of zooms into the eye mm. of Lee Byung-hyun. 
Um, and then you sort of, and you, he sees his face as he's going by the window and then zooms out again and the guy falls like at, at normal speed again. And it's like, uh, or like the bits where they're talking and it's these kind of drifting camera moves that kind of circle in sort of like 180 or 360 degree yeah. uh, movements. And that, that standoff scene at the end is so mm. tense and so well filmed. It has a whole bit that sort of is this just long flowing take. And that's the sort of stuff that he's just, I mean, that's, that's, that's like, that's my crack. That's the right. sort of stuff that, you know, like this gets me really excited when I watch right. cinema. <laughs> and so like, and, and, and that was it. Like I was sitting there and going like, I could see the stilted shitty version of this film so easily but I just feel it's invested with so much intelligent nuance and just really great flair. And so, yeah, no, I, 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 I think it's, it's, it's brilliant. Yeah, it's interesting because, again, it only has a 70%, so the, the aggregate of critics don't seem to have thought it was fresh. So I'm curious as to why it would not even get a fresh rating. I mean, it seems like it would have something in the 90s because it is a very, I think, cogent story i think uh stylistically i have a theory really... about this what I, I have a theory okay okay yeah as i said i don't think this film got a lot of attention outside of um asia until after old boy came out so i think a lot of people went and looked at it post old boy which meant that i think a lot of those reviews potentially are people kind of going watching it and going oh this is actually far more mainstream this isn't like as weird and out there and crazy as old boy so therefore it's not as good i feel like it's like people going in with the expectation of old boy but not taking it on its terms of what it is um i mean that's that's a theory i would i i can't say that there's anything to back that up other than my own kind of like uh other than some assumptions that i've made sure but i mean i think that's a very possible reason with it i also think sometimes it's like i i, I think that's it i think it's a lot of great nuance and flair in a much more mainstream package and i think that's mm. maybe sort of so i think there's a, an immediate sometimes rejection of that stuff though at the same time uh last train to bouchon has something like a 90 something percent and that thing is a piece of shit so i don't know why any so i'm 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 sometimes you know it's it's like with uh with with critics and foreign films like sometimes i'm 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 baffled by what their their thought processes on things are so you yeah. know i also wonder if people were to watch it today rather than let's say 10 years ago if there'd be a different reception because now you know with the north korean standoff in the united states and the west here where people are much more attuned to things that are going on there and let's say even over the past 10 years i feel like you know with the passing of kim jong il and then the take uh, his son uh, rises to ascend or ascends to take over that there's more of uh, our attention has been turned to what's going on in the dmz and so i wonder if that would automatically pique people's interests a little bit more and they'd be well, more and sympathetic and I, to the stakes of the film and it would engross them a little bit more. When I think this, there's, there's an interesting thing that I always remember from when I watched that documentary, Not Quite Hollywood, um, where they talk about the notion of the exotic, the things that you as a native don't find exotic, but you, when you see it mm. in other cultures, you find it exotic. And I think there, I think this film gets a lot of mileage out of, um, the oddness of what the DMZ is. Right. Like the fact that you have these buildings that are just there to <laughs> exist on a line so that one person can sit on one side of the table and the other can sit on the other side of the table without crossing the borders. Right. There's a lot of 
absurdism within how mm. this sort of truce between North Korea and South Korea has been reached, this sort of tenuous, weird kind of um, stand down. And the fact that you just have these soldiers patrolling along there with all of these landmines everywhere <laughs> and just this and it, there's 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 a strangeness and a pettiness to all of this. And it's 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 so fascinating that it's like this government mandated pettiness. And that's. And that's what the Cold War was in a lot of ways. I mean, I remember like going to East and West Berlin and it's fascinating because they show you the the architecture in West Berlin versus the architecture in East Berlin. And it's again like the Americans were pumping money into West Berlin as part of this kind of arms race with the Soviets over who was going to build things better or show themselves off better. Like, you know, Americans wanted to revitalize all of these churches and religious things because they knew that would piss off the Soviets. <laughs> and so the Soviets then decided, OK, well, we're going to build like giant like radio towers and things that are like great sort of uh uh useful things for the state they had like a sort of utilitarian idea of it because it's like (laughs) these americans are wasting their money on like art and stupid shit like that but we're gonna like build like an infrastructure and that was like so it's like it's 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 there's a fascinating weird pettiness in how world governments work and i think Mm. that's it's it's so interesting when you actually look at what the dmz is And I think the film does. It manages to... Again, you have that scene where uh, the two guards um, are, like, on opposite sides of this sort of big line. And they're just spitting over the line, having kind of fun with each other and kind of laughing Hmm. at at this idea. And then at one point where they're standing and he goes, like, your shadow is just over the border. And so he steps back so his shadow is no longer (laughs) over the border. I mean, it's like the film is playing with some of the absurdism Hmm. of what this is. Yeah, yeah, no, it, 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 and I think it does it in a, in a way that is really successful because I imagine, and I don't know, but you have to think that people on either side of the divide, they're fucking humans, man. Yeah. And and we are wired for empathy. To to sum it up, I I think JSA is actually I I think it's actually underrated. I think it's it's I was surprised. I think I was actually going in with a surprising amount of low expectations on it, and I think it really surprised me just how much I liked it. Well, I have a theory. I think that you rigged the Rotten Tomatoes scoring system so that you could have two 90 percentiles in your, uh, in your stable. So that's my theory going forward. Well, well, Austin, <laughs> in theory, like, I, 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 you know, I could have just gotten 90 percentiles through pure luck. I don't see what that, what, what rigging it would, good rigging it would have done. In fact, if I really wanted to rig it, I just would have rigged the 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 be picking things out of a hat part of it, Good where point. I could have just given myself nothing but nineties. Good point. Okay, so we are getting into Austin's favorite part of the verses series, which is where we score the <laughs> films. So, uh, <sighs> because because we went with Red Desert first, I am going to start. So, first one was directing. Which I was very, very positive about, obviously. Yep. I think it is really nicely directed. I thought it's um, really beautifully shot. Um, so I'm giving it a 9. Yeah, I'm giving JSA a 9 too. Uh, and it's only because I think if if Park Chan-wook is kind of like the pinnacle of directing, which I think we experienced, from in my perspective, I think we saw in The Handmaiden. I think The Handmaiden mm. is like a damn near flawless film. If 
not that there is a standard of perfection, but maybe that's setting the benchmark of what filmmaking yeah. should be. Does that make sense? So yeah, it's, like, well, it's, it's, it's hard sometimes, too, because I always think that thing of whenever you've made genuine classics, it's hard for your other films to sometimes live up to it because it's like the expectations are so high. Yeah. And I actually think one of the things about JSA is I weirdly went in with low expectations on it. So it was uh, it was surprised. So it actually exceeded my expectations. That's another thing with me, too, which which, again, yeah. is probably going to affect the scoring. But, yeah, I, I gave it a nine. I think it's actually really well shot. I think mm-hmm. the pacing is great. I love the way that he mixes up the styles. So, it, yeah, really, really good. Okay, so um, on to acting. I, you know, again, I, I I liked all the people in it. Again, I I found it a difficult one to grade a little bit because it's kind of that thing of, again, I'm, I'm, I find her at times a little bit over the top to on the nose sure. what she's doing. But at the same time, I'm not really necessarily sure that that's fair to the time and the culture that is being portrayed. And, you know, and I, again, I, I certainly didn't think anyone was bad. And I, so I decided, you know, I decided to err on the charitable side. I gave it a nine as well. Yeah. I, again, nine. And the reason is because even though there are those moments maybe when the English speaking parts kind of can take you out of it, like I said, I'm not going to fault a film for that because I think I kind of, um, there's something like, like you said, you're on the side of charitability. There's something called the hermeneutics of charitability, where you sort of, when you're interpreting something, you sort of just presume that the other person knows what they're doing. And someone like Park Chan Wook has yeah. earned that from me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a little bit like what we were talking about, too, when we were talking about Room 237, which is like this idea that um, when you believe the artist is all knowing and perfect, then you believe everything was intentional. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, okay, so um, on to writing. Um, writing is probably the thing I graded the lowest, and it's not that I thought it was badly written. It's just the fact that it just didn't go anywhere for me, and scenes just felt like they went on too long. And so I'm giving it a 7. Um, it's not because I thought it was bad. It's just because I didn't feel there was a lot going on in the writing part of it. Yeah, I mean, for me, I gave the writing of JSA a 9 again mm-hmm. because I think the story is so compelling. I think it's so interesting. I think the topic is so interesting. And so you you can't create a story with higher stakes. Mm-hmm. I mean, it kind of throws you into a situation that is at the peak of high stakes. Um, I think there's some wonderful nuance. I think the characters were really, really well-written and real well-developed, so... Yeah, it's nine. Nine's across the board so far. Okay, uh, next we are on to production. And the production was the part of this that I actually feel was what really, the part I felt most immersed in. Like, mm. I, as I said, I kind of, I loved the the way that the industrial landscape is used. I loved the colors. You know, I, I enjoyed this film a lot on a visual side of things. And again, it's one of those things that really took it beyond some of the other art cinema we've watched where mm-hmm. I this I was I was absorbed in the production of it. So I decided um, I decided to give it a 10. Oh, look at you. Because I, th- I, yeah. I think it perfectly does what it's trying to do with that production. Let's be real. You could have given it 10s across the board, and when we get to the final category, you're going to shit on me anyway. So um, <laughs> it does, it, I, I don't even care at this point. All that matters is that – so for production for JSA, I actually gave it an 8. Uh, in, in, okay. An 8. And the reason that I gave it an 8 was because it is a little bit more low production. You know, um, It's a little bit grainier. Um, it's not as slick 
as, yeah, as even as watching it on Amazon, like it wasn't like a particularly great transfer of it. I don't know if anyone's ever like really done a good transfer of this film. Yeah, I don't know. And then at the same time, I also don't want to shit like we talked about with Deadlands a yeah. few weeks back. I don't want to shit on a uh, producer or a director for not having a budget, you know, yeah. because, you know, you can get a film like Slacker that is like a no budget film, but you've got to you've got to fucking, you know, appreciate that. So I don't want to shit on it too much for it being low production, but at the same time, obviously, it, it isn't as slick as even Old Boy, which is just made a few years later. So I feel like I actually previewed what I said, um, what, uh, what this category earlier, when I sort of <laughs> talked about actually that it's reflecting a lot about Italy's um, burgeoning industrial um, okay. yeah, yeah. And, and, and build up and how actually it's sort of occupying an interesting point in. Uh, Italy's history coming out of the decimation of World War II, also how Italian neorealist cinema relates to that because so much of Italian neorealist cinema is really showing off the country, the culture, Mm. what is happening at that moment in time. Um, And so because I think this is possibly the only film of yours which is (laughs) actually has any context with the country it's from, I mean, certainly Fahrenheit 451, I don't know how the hell I'm going to score that. Uh, I I decided to just give you a 10 because it's like you actually managed to like have something that was somewhat relevant to the country and I'm just taking pity on you at this point. People so can't see me you, right now but I'm flexing. <laughs> you, you get you get a 10 for meeting the minimum requirements. Oh Jesus, I love it. You you had a film that was actually set in the country that's about. Listen everybody, I didn't really think about that element when I was choosing my films. I just chose good films from the countries. Um, you were told what the scoring system was ahead of time, but you didn't pay attention. That's what I'm saying. I just did not <laughs> consider it. Um, and then, of course, with JSA, how can you not give it a 10? It's about the, perhaps the most interesting conditional paradigm of how to understand a certain element of uh, of Korean uh, ethnic history. So, uh, obviously, it says something very fascinating about... The divide between North and South Korea, uh, the shared ethnic heritage, um, and then just about humanity at large. I mean, it, it's very, it is a very well done film, and it's very culturally interesting as well. Is is there anything you want to challenge on? You got directing nine, acting nine, writing seven, production ten, and what it says about the country ten. No, I mean the only thing I could say is writing, but I know that there's not much wiggle room in that. Mm. So, no, I'm good. I got nothing I'm challenging on, so it's like... Okay, yeah. So that that brings your final score to 45? Yours was 45. Ooh. Are you sure you don't want to challenge? Maybe try and get an extra point? I mean... Because at extra point, you get an extra point, then you get five for the win. Yes, then it's an extra five. It's it's actually an extra six points. Um, Yeah. I mean, okay. So how would I challenge... How would I challenge on... There's writing... Acting. So directing's nine, acting's nine, writing seven. So those, those other, the other two are tens. So. Okay, so the only one I, I, I mean, I think writing. The thing is, so you gave it a seven. No, I, I can't even make a case for it because, no. I, you I, give up so easily, man. I know, I know. Um, this is why my fight, my fighting career didn't last long. <laughs> <laughs> I could totally see if this was me, I would totally just throw some bullshit at you and try and actually get an extra point. I don't have, I don't have the energy right now to fight. 
Okay, well, I tell you what, um, we'll we'll round on this, and because um, and uh, um, you, I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you the five points um, for the victory. He's so sweet. Uh, because, He's so yeah. kind. So uh, that's gonna give you fifty points overall. Uh, 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 my victory dance. Uh, uh so ninety-two to plus forty is one thirty-two plus five, so one thirty-seven. One thirty-seven. Okay. So, I mean, you've you've pulled within ten. That can't be right. Yeah, it's one thirty-seven to one twenty-eight. I, I I don't think I can't be at one twenty-eight. That seems like too much. Where was you I? Got, before? You got fifty. You were at sixty-eight plus fifty. Then I'm at one oh eight. Wait, what did you say? I, I'm at one eighteen. All right, so uh, we have established I'm terrible at math. Uh, so it is <laughs> one thirty-seven to one eighteen. Yes. Um, 19, so Austin, nineteen point spread. <clears throat> Austin's pulled within nineteen points. That's right, baby. That's how many. How many? Don't points get too <laughs> smoked. Nineteen points is hardly anything. How many points did the Pats come from behind to win the Super Bowl last year? That's what I'm talking about. Okay, so it's time to talk about what we are watching next week. We are back to normal schedule, and it is my choice. So, um, Austin, this week it was. Fairly depressing set of films, you know, woman going crazy in an industrial landscape, the inevitable um, destruction of humanity through uh, government uh, rhetoric. Um, so I thought, let's continue that. Let's get even more <laughs> depressed. <laughs> it's, um, uh, fuck it, the world's all going to shit. We'll just, we'll just get more and more depressed. And uh, we are going to watch uh, one of the most depressing things I think I've ever sat through, oh, which is the 1969 film, They Shoot Horses, Don't They? What the fuck? I've never even heard of this. What is this one? It's a Sidney Pollock film. It concerns a dance contest in the Depression with a cash prize where uh, contestants basically dance till they can't stand anymore. And the last person, last person standing wins the prize. That doesn't sound depressing. Stars, stars Jane Fonda. Why, um, why is it so depressing? Well, I mean, Austin, I feel like if you look at the, if you look at the title... They shoot horses. They shoot they? horses, don't they? It's set during the Depression, yeah. and it's about people dancing until they can't stand anymore. Yeah, it sounds like I, a bunch of people who are trying to seek some sort of reprieve from the terrible conditions of economic collapse, so they just dance because it's so much fun, and then they just think, get tired. I think you've got a very warped idea of what this <laughs> film is going to be. Apparently, I do. Okay, in the meantime, uh, please uh, rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, it's useful to us. Um, pl- you know, you can check out my work at uh, Um You can follow me on Instagram um, at Breaking Point Flicks. Uh, and yeah, um, Austin. Hit me, uh, yep, hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. Although I did have a bit of an epiphany this week, and I might be getting rid of my Twitter. I'm just not sure that I want to be plugged into the Matrix that much here. I don't know, but you while can... it's still live, Austin underscore Hayden, you can see me tweeting about this existential crisis that I'm going through. I swear to God, one of these days, I'm just going to see a Facebook status from you. This guy, like, guys, I've decided to uh, burn all my money, and I'm just going to go like live by a lake, you know, and just uh, and just write, write my thoughts. I'm not kidding. That sounds. And just, uh, we won't hear from you in ten years, that and then you'll be beautiful. like, guys, I've got like I've got like thousands of notebooks just filled with my thoughts. <laughs> That sounds beautiful, actually. I'm not kidding. In, in, in the meantime, uh, you know, it, well, we will see you next week uh, yes. for uh, our regular scheduled program with They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Peace. Peace.